Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. October 15th, 2023, episode 228, Chicks Dig Scars. Hello everyone, Kevin England. Glad to be back for a new episode of the Beekeeper's Corner. I have to say that I've missed this, and I am so happy to be recording once more. I have many things to tell you, starting briefly with an explanation of this episode title. If you haven't heard this by now, I'm on the mend after having endured a bit of a medical situation that involved a gallbladder gone bad, and well, all I have to say for the moment is pain heals, chicks dig scars, and glory lasts forever. I'll explain that later, but (laughs) it's such a quotable line from the movie The Replacements with Keanu Reeves that I couldn't pass it up. That should tell you that I have not lost my cheekiness or candor, so apparently that does not emanate from one's gallbladder, but I digress. Please allow me to spend a moment here in the opening to reflect a bit about what's been going on, and along the way I'll share what the plans are for this episode. It's October, and due to my condition and some other factors, I have not been doing much of anything since August. I feel squarely behind the eight ball in that regard, but now that I'm on the mend and I've returned to my normal work, I plan to also look into what I can do to look after my neglected bees and get them into winter shape. I am trying to muster a plan while I still have some reasonable days to work with in the rest of what looks to be a chilly October. I've not been on the air to pick up where I left off after this year's Eastern Apiculture Society Conference. Uh, Something was planned for the period after episode 227 in my mind. That's still a good place to start. So in this episode, I'll go back and unpack of some of what we picked up there with some playback of reflections of the show, some recordings captured, and so on. As is customary, Bob Kloss and I made the trek to EAS and recorded reflections for the ride home. Again, this year, the recording was fouled up, and I'm sorry to say that I'm probably, unless I could find a way to resurrect it, recounting our joint takeaways by myself, which I think happened last year, if I'm not mistaken. This, coupled with listening to the Dewey episode, has brought me to a moment of clarity about my operation. I've reached a threshold to know that I need to procure a better solution for microphone packs as, duh, sound is kind of important for remote capture when you're producing a podcast. And since I plan to do this for a long time, I guess I can look to make that investment and it will pay over time. Unfortunately, good lavalier systems, ones that I would prefer to use, are quite expensive, and perhaps I'm going to have to put something on the wish list for Santa this year. Yeah, so enough of that. Let me just say, from an agenda standpoint for this episode, we might as well get started. And the fact of the matter is, I have so many different things rattling through my head in no particular order that I'm going to kind of do it ad hoc. Um, Just... Whatever floats to the surface, that will be what we're going to talk about as we go through. And um, I'm going to catch up on a couple things from EAS, catch up on a couple things from the Northern Lights Conference. We will have a local hive report at the end, and 
in between a couple news and notes. So what do you say? Let's get started. Roundtable number one, I want to open this episode with what I consider to be the lead. This is more kind of like an editorial or a topic, but I didn't want to bury it at the end of the episode. I wanted it to be front and center. For 2023, my takeaway from all the things that I've been hearing from local meetings, from regional meetings, from state meetings, from conferences, has to do with queen quality. I've long had this angst about the quality of queens, specifically rebelling against name brand queens. And I'm here to say that I have nothing against varroa sensitive hygiene and ankle biters and all of those things. But ultimately, I always felt like the answer for queens has to do with queen quality. And so I want to say this to the beekeepers listening is that I'm hoping somewhere along the line that every beekeeper has that moment where they get on board to this notion. Let me explain what I am talking about here, and I'll start with a jump-off point. We saw Medhad Nasser. Uh, re- he was presenting at the conference in Canada, in Calgary, that I just came from. And he's the one that gave me that aha moment that has been building all year long. And it had to do with his presentation and specifically about queen quality as to the amount of sperm that is on board in the spermatheca after looking at queens and how they perform. One of the weird things about queen research is that you have to kill the queen in order to inspect its insides. And therefore you can't really tell how it correlates. But the one thing that I would say, and it's pretty common is that let's say a million sperm in a spermatheca, which is not a lot, that queen is not going to make it through the season. And at some point she will not be able to fertilize her eggs and they will replace her. At 3 million sperm, same thing is going to happen, but maybe it'll be in July instead of right off the bat. Whatever the case may be, if a queen goes out and mates, with a handful of drones, it's an okay queen. If it goes out and mates with a large number of drones, it's a good queen. If it goes out and mates with a spectacular amount of drones, it's going to be an amazing queen. That's my takeaway from all the things I've heard this season. And so let me tell you how that correlates to benefiting you as a beekeeper and why you might consider somewhere getting on board with a quality queen rearing program, whether it's you or somebody else. And I'll get to that, put a pin in it. The first thing to say is that queens coming that have been rushed early in the season are not well mated and they're subject to failure. And so the logical answer is to do what nature wants to provide. Produce your queens in the heart of the season. Both the quality of the food and resources available to build the queen as a machine, and then the fact that she goes out and mates with a plethora of drones at the height of the season, makes the equation for a high-quality queen mating session and genetic material being stored in the spermatheca. 
the genetic soup in the spermatheca that comes from multiple, multiple, multiple drone matings creates a stronger colony. It's a direct correlation. Queens that have been better mated build more bees, collect more resources, and have the diversity of workforce that does all the jobs required and on a stellar basis. Let me explain that for a moment. When a queen builds a high population, the diversity of jobs, called the division of labor, is based on the genetic material that is passed down through the patriline. And if a large number of drones were part of the equation, then you might have more bees that would go collect propolis, and more bees that would be good wax builders, and more bees that would be water bottle bees, and things like that. All the specialty and fringe jobs that may or may not be present when a queen is poorly or just adequately measured. Made it, I mean. And so from that perspective, when the queen is all that she can be, your colony will benefit from it. If you're buying your queens, you're buying your packages, you're buying your nukes, that is coming from somebody else. So let's go back to the thing that I want to talk about, which is what can you do? As an individual in your first couple years, really your job is to understand your craft. Keep your colony going, take whatever bees have come your way and get through with them. But if you want to improve what's out inside the boxes of your yard, you might get on board with the queen rearing program. Now, whether you personally are going to go down the path of learning how to rear queens, which is challenging, but doable, that's, you know, your choice. There are usually in any beekeepers association enough people doing this within the org that you could probably partner with someone. In fact, I want to do this. I go back to this notion, which is not a new one. Uh, I remember Billy Davis coming up from Virginia, talking to New Jersey beekeepers and operating a program. And the late Billy Davis would have people rearing queens and giving them away in order to improve the local genetic stock of the Virginia regions. And this idea surfaces and then it gets buried and it surfaces and it gets buried and I'm trying to bring it to the surface again. Find a bunch of beekeepers inside your club, have a queen rearing party, teach everybody how to do it. And most times when you build queens you make enough that you have some to distribute around to friends and neighbors maybe you're the one person that wants to join that group or maybe you want to partner with people to benefit from it i think about the height of the season in new jersey and the plethora of beekeepers that we have and i think it's not a stretch to say that if you rear queens in the height of the season they're going to be well mated because of the sheer number of hives we have density wise in the mid-atlantic region and so that's the lesson for today the takeaway that i've had this year that has been iron and cemented is brand name bees are beautiful love those queens but the quality of the mating is probably where the money is where the the production of honey they produce more honey 
They build better bees, stronger bees, healthier bees. This helps with Varroa in the background. This is the things that people are talking about now. And uh, the lesson for the day is somewhere along the line on your roadmap, see what you can do about introducing locally mated queens into your operation. You'll be better for it. Roundtable number two, one eye on Patterson. I want to take a moment and reflect on the life of Tom Foscaldo, who passed recently. His services are going to be held Sunday, October 22nd in Patterson, New Jersey, where New Jersey beekeepers can pay their respects. Tom, um, what to say about him? I didn't know him personally. I've never really interacted with him other than saying hello and chit-chat over lunch here and there, but he was someone who was ever-present in our beekeeping scene in the New Jersey Beekeepers Association. And he was just one of those larger-than-life individuals. Uh, you know, when you looked at his car, he drove this big station wagon, and at some point he ran for the mayor of Patterson. And as an advertisement, it said, Tom, one eye on Patterson, Fiscaldo running for mayor or something like that. He always had these ladders on his car and... I uh, believe in the back of a station wagon was a kit to collect swarms, but he was primarily known as a person for apotherapy. Wherever he went to present on apotherapy, he always wore a white lab coat. He did a meeting for us at Northwest at one point. Uh, it was in November 13th, and if you go to the bkcorner.org website and search for Frescaldo or apotherapy, you'll find that bonus edition, and it'll take you to a link where you can watch a YouTube presentation. He was an amazing presenter. He just had this certain persona that gushed out of him. And, uh, you know, I guess it's one of those things where you recognize an institution for someone who had a lot of knowledge on the topic. And unfortunately, he'll no longer be with us, but his legacy will be around. You know, one of the things I remember from Tom was he addressed the situation as an apotherapist being asked, well, how, how can you sting people? How can you take on that risk and promote this as something that is good for them? And he had created this handout that was a bit cheeky, but also very clear, which made all kinds of jokes like, you know, you enter the property, you run the risk of lightning and biting dogs and this and that. But ultimately, between the lines, it said, you agree to be stung. You agree to understand that we're doing this in a professional manner. That is going to be the least riskiest approach for you to get on board. There is some thought and uh, science and experience behind it. And you would read through this and it would kind of break the ice for the engagement for somebody to become uh, stung by bees in the guise of apotherapy. And I thought it was a very creative and how do you say it, uh, advanced way to actually do that. Uh, I wonder if the apotherapy world even knows what he did there with this bee sting agreement. Uh, it said informed acknowledgement of danger and release. And if you ever want a copy of that to see it, we'll post it on the web website with this episode, or you can jot me a note and I'll send you the actual file. But uh, Tom Fuscada will be missed. Um, hadn't seen him around in a while, assumed he was up there in age and uh, having health problems and sad to hear of his passing but we'll remember him fondly as will many new jersey beekeepers who had the pleasure to know him
Round table number three, I call this one, Pass It On. This came by way of EAS in a talk of Cameron Jack, where he was talking about the new beekeeper training that they do down there in Florida. And he said something that was really uh, prophetic, so to speak. And it's something that after hearing it, I've had five or six opportunities to parrot what he's said to different people in my conversations. It's funny how this topic comes up and it kind of gives you the tool to have the conversation with people. Case in point, went to the races on Friday night and at the end of the night we were standing there talking and someone was having the conversation about getting a jar of honey from my brother and saying I had said to her, why don't you become a beekeeper? And she said, oh no, I, I'm afraid of getting stung. I think I'm allergic and so on. Coming back to what Cameron said, he encounters that same sentiment. I'm afraid of getting stung. I don't want to be stung, so on and so on. And so does every beekeeper on the planet when they talk about the craft. Yeah, how do you address that with people who just cannot be told that they will be fine. They're going to live through it. And chances are the swelling and the burn and whatever that comes from being stung is a natural reaction and you're not going to die. Cameron's response to this was, when was the last time you were stung? He's trying to tell his students, college students, by the way, to suck it up. That their memory that they harbor about this thing was carried from probably when they were seven or eight years old and got stung as a child. And, you know, that's a traumatic event when you're seven or eight years old. But now that you're an adult, guess what? If you get stung, suck it up, you're going to live. I, I don't know that he presented it this way, but he wasn't that far off. I kind of laughed when he said it and so did everybody in the room. But he's right. It's an interesting thing to tell someone is that you have to put away your childhood self and actually you'll come to understand that it's not that bad. Um, you know, I guess you could use this same thing when you're getting a shot. Uh, maybe you're getting a flu shot. People are afraid of needles and all that. Now, some folks just absolutely categorically will not do well, no matter whether they're a, a seven-year-old or an adult, but... It's an interesting thing to say to somebody. You know, when you were a kid, think about the things that happened to you. And now that you're an adult, you just brush them off. Being stung like a bee is a rite of passage. And it's a very similar thing. And it's not as bad as you think. And we'll put you in a bee suit. We'll put you in a veil. And if you happen to get stung, I promise you, you're going to be okay. We'll kiss your boo-boo and you can move along. I can't deliver that with any sound of compassion, especially since, uh, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. But anyway, you might consider that idea and see if you can formulate a response for the 85 people who always tell you, you said, oh my God, I couldn't get stung. That would be awful. And now, you know, thank you, Cameron, for that. That was pretty insightful. Roundtable number four, honeybee syrup calculator came across this, I think, from a Facebook post, but I had a note to go to it. You could find this utility provided courtesy of DefianceHillFarms.com. If you go to the website, I don't see a place that you can 
go through the navigation and click on it. You have to kind of know where the URL is. So I'm going to give you the URL and I'm also going to put it in the show notes. It's Defiance Hill Farms with an S dot com slash tools slash B syrup, B E E syrup, all one word. What do you get when you go there? There's a simple little web page to interact with. The first thing you do is choose your system of measurement. Maybe you want to do Imperial US or you can click on metric. Then you can choose the syrup density. Everybody knows one to one is one part water, one part sugar, whether it's volume or by weight, but they have different ratios there. They have two to one syrup for making a thick slurry for fall. Three to two, five to three, three to one. If you want to do really thick fall syrup, they even have one to four for hummingbird strength. Now it's a little late in the year to be feeding, uh, depending on where you're at, but it's always good to have these type of utilities. Now what's interesting is you can calculate by different factors. If you want to know the number of pounds required sugar by weight, you just enter the weight of the sugar to use. If you want to know sugar by volume, you can enter the number of cups you intend to use and it will tell you how much water to put in. And if you want to, you can say, I want to make 10 gallons. And when you put 10 gallons in and choose your ratio, say one to one, click the calculate button and it'll tell you that you would need 117 cups by volume, 6.9 gallons, 6.19 gallons of water, and you'll get a 10 gallon volume. It's kind of cool. It's hard to describe. So just go there and click on it and you'll get it lickety split. DefianceHillFarms.com slash tools slash bee syrup is the link and thanks to them for creating this little utility. It's pretty nifty. Round table number five, chicks dig scars. It feels like it's time to break this open and just talk about this a little bit. Uh, I think I'll probably refer to it here and there through the rest of the episode. So let me take a moment and talk about what happened to me. We, Sharon and I, headed south back on the last day of August or second to last day in August to go to Virginia. We were heading to Charlotte, North Carolina to go visit a friend of hers, stopped for the night in Martinsville, Virginia, and I suffered god-awful pain that evening while going to bed. And the next morning, in a pain scale of about 9.9 out of 10, drove out of that little podunk town that we were in to Roanoke where I thought we would find a better hospital system and it turns out my gallbladder decided it was time to get out. In fact, there was apparently a ping pong sized ball blocking the ducts and it backed up all the bile inside of the gallbladder and it was basically decomposing from the inside out. It was gangrene and when they got to it from starting to uh, take a peek lap laparoscopically, they immediately shifted to the old-fashioned surgery where they cut me from just underneath my right rib cage all the way around to take it out. A secondary surgery occurred two days later from a complication, and it's been a month of recovery. And the bad news for me is that I feel like, um, you know, I was on pain meds and I was on muscle relaxants, 
And up until the time that even after we left for Canada and during the Canada break that we took, I was still having pretty serious sharp pains from the surgery and the scar area. So needless to say, there's no beekeeping for me. <laughs> I'm not able to lift anything. It was hard enough to get a good night's sleep and I'm not one to take a lot of medicine. So there was a time when I really wanted to get off of the medicine train and as soon as I could tolerate whatever amount of pain I could live with I basically got off of the pain meds and stopped taking the muscle relaxants tried to get back to a sense of normal where this takes me is something that I want to talk about which is something I've discussed in the episodes previous I'm out of beekeeping shape now today is Sunday, October 15th, and Sharon and I went out to work the bees today. She had to help me because I'm really not supposed to lift. And it hurts to turn and lift and twist and do all that stuff. And I long to get to activities to use my body in different ways, to bend and stretch, to pull and make use of my core. All this prolonged period of being sedentary has just not been good. And even getting in and out of the car, going back to work and things. It's not woe is me, but what a, what a weird way to live. So debilitating. One of the major things as a side effect, which I'd never anticipated, is they put so many IVs in my arms over the course of being in the critical care unit and in my hands that they blew out some veins. And I, I am pretty sure they hit a couple nerves. And on my left arm on the top when they put the IV in for my second surgery. I think they hit a tendon because my middle finger and my thumb have no grip in the left hand. I can't hardly even open a bottle cap. I'm wondering if I have to go to some form of therapy or, or something. I have a squeeze ball that I've been using, Sharon found, and just trying to see if I can get some sense of grip back in my hands, which is something obviously you need to hold for I, even today trying to use the hive tool was a bit of a challenge i noticed so what a strange set of events i don't wish this upon anybody and you know it's just one of those things where in the next couple of months although the beekeeping season is over i plan to get back to the gym and try to get back into beekeeping shape for spring and whatever else comes my way so yeah, it's been a rather trying period uh, trying to straighten some things out um, from what I have going on. I just had my final procedure this past Saturday where they went in and took a stent out of my bile duct that was in there. And now at least all I have to do is focus on healing and be done with it. But if you wondered what happened to me over the past whatever number of weeks it's been that's the situation if you didn't see my posts on Facebook just kind of telling everybody how things are going and to that end I wanted to uh, say thanks to those who checked in on me and asked if I was doing okay uh, when I disappear I always forget to tell people that I'm kind of hanging in there I put a couple posts out but when they don't hear the podcast being produced everybody kind of wonders what happens to me and uh, yeah, it's been a rather interesting year in 2023. It started with the tumor on my eye and now this. Let's hope that it has worked its way out of the system and it'll be a quiet uh, 2023 for the rest of the year and into 2024. And for those of you who checked in on me, thank you. I appreciate the uh, sentiment and words for 
those who uh, sent notes along the way, and onward and upward. Topic number one for this episode, it was time. The other day at work, I looked down at my shoes while sitting, talking to someone at my desk and realized they could use a little TLC. And then Friday night at the racetrack, looking down at my work boots, I looked down at them and they could use a little TLC. I am currently sitting here looking at some very nice and shiny shoes and smelling a really pleasant odor of leather that has been recently treated. And I want to talk about homemade beeswax pastes. If you go back to episode number 90 of the show, that was 2016. Wow, a long time ago. You will find that I did some posts about making beeswax pastes. P-A-S-T-E, pastes. And the point of those were to try to make products of the hive. I think um, this is probably the simplest product of the hive that you could ever come up with, yet I find that it's very effective. It's four parts oil to one part beeswax melted into a double boiler. That's really all you have to do. Put both of those in, heat the oil up as the carrier until you melt the wax and can stir it in and it becomes one consistent liquid and then you just pour it into a suitable container and allow it to cool. Now if you know anything about leather treatments you can find a whole bunch of different additives and so on but I will tell you that hmm this is a Kevin moment. When I was a young kid my father the bricklayer my older brother, the bricklayer, and my twin, who at the time wasn't a bricklayer, but would be someday. We all lived in a world where you had bricklayer clothing. What does a construction worker wear? They wear Carhartt. And what kind of shoes do they have? They have Timberland boots. The quintessential bricklayer Timberland boots. And I remember my parents coming home at one point and giving me a pair and my twin brother a pair of Timberland boots. It was very exciting times for us because we had boots just like my father and my older brother. And then I similarly, similarly, summarily, whatever the word is, remember that one day Pop came home. He had about the same shoe size as I did and his boots were absolutely destroyed from pouring concrete. And out the door he went with my boots on. <laughs> I was so distraught and upset. But one of the first things I did as a young adult is went to the Flemington department store and I bought myself a pair of Timberland boots. And I take really, really good care of them as I reach over to grab them. And yeah, they're a little bit worn and they look a little crusty at times but this is what I did uh, earlier today it's now at night while I'm recording I got a damp rag put a couple drops of Dawn dishwash detergent and I scrubbed them off really what I was doing is just trying to get the grime off they weren't really terribly dirty they were dusty and dirty but nothing that water and a little soapy water couldn't wash off and I scrubbed them clean 
to the point where I got them down to clean leather all the way through. And when you do this, you want to pay attention to the nooks and the crannies. All the leather, the inside, you take the laces out if you're going to do it right. And then you let them dry. They don't have to be bone dry. They just have to be dry enough that they don't look wet. I use my fingers. I scoop this out. Now, let me talk about, I had three pairs of shoes I did today. One of them was my work shoes, which are brown leather, typical, you know, work shoes. And the other two are work boots. One is my garage work boots, which are my Timberlands. And the other ones that are my uh, Merrill, I don't know what, what kind they are, hiking boots. So I did all three of these, my brown leather work shoes, my work boots, and my Merrill hiking boots. The reason I make this distinction and go down this path is to tell you that I had two different kind of pastes that I used tonight. Now you can use um, paste with linseed oil, mineral oil, or some sort of neutral oil like an olive oil. I made these pastes back in 2016. I keep them on the shelf and when I went and got them tonight I looked at the olive oil one and opened it it was rancid now the olive oil one I would think that that would be more suitable for something like wooden cooking implements cutting boards stirring sticks things that are wood that you want to protect and they get washed and cleaned and whatever and in time the protection goes away and you do it again. And I would make small batches of olive oil if you were going to do it. In the case, I still had linseed oil and the mineral oil. I put the mineral oil one on my dress shoes. And the reason for that is it's a rather neutral protectant. Now, it's October and they're claiming that we're going to have a humdinger of a winter. Trucking through rainstorms, trucking through snow with your shoes on and all of that. It is a secret, I think, of the shoe industry that when you get your shoes from the store, if you rub your finger on them, you know that they've been treated with some sort of oil. And eventually, that is going to dissipate and dry out. And this replenishes it. So my strategy was, I put the mineral oil beeswax mixture on my work shoes. And I put the linseed oil beeswax mixture on my boots. Now when you wear these, one of the things you should be aware of is the heat from your feet will activate the oils and the beeswax in a good way. Except that linseed oil has a specific kind of odor to it. And there was a time when I did a pair of work shoes with linseed oil and I wore them to work and when my feet got warm from being inside the building and the leather was soft and supple and gave off a leathery smell that smelled a little bit like linseed oil and everybody was looking around like, what is that smell? It smells good, but it's a little odd. Linseed oil has kind of its own type of smell to it. If you've never smelled it, when you smell it, it's very distinct. And so everybody was kind of perplexed by it, but I knew what it was. It was from my shoes. So now that I'm going to be in the workplace, I put mineral oil, which is so neutral that you would never know. It makes your work shoes 
look just like you were in the military service. They're beautiful. Now, what I do is I use my fingers and my hands. I just take a little dab and I put it and I rub it through all the nooks and crannies and I really saturate it the first time. And then the next morning when you come back, if you rub your hands together to get some warmth and you, I'm rubbing my hands together if you can hear it, and you rub it over it and you can spread any excess deposits across and then you can take a little dab and put one more finish on it if you want. I really layered in. I mean, I saturated it. And what I noticed with my work boots when I put the linseed on is the front of the toe area was a little dried out. It won't be. It will resurrect that leather and that leather will be as soft and supple as when it came from the store. Now, the one thing about this is it darkens your shoes. If you've ever seen you know, boots from the store, they come as like a um, top color, a light tan. My work boots look dark brown now. I don't mind that. In fact, I think the ones I bought were dark brown. They weren't the light. There's two different variations of the Timberland boots. But now they're dark brown, almost like a chocolate brown. But all I have to do is one or two applications and they will be clearly protected all through winter into next year and it'll probably be another two years before I talk to you about it. What I was impressed with was the linseed oil and the mineral oil. I made that in 2016. It's 2023 and it's still held up. It doesn't smell funny. It doesn't feel funny. Now the linseed oil skinned on the top, which is normal. If you ever had linseed oil in a container, um, I actually went and bought it for this purpose. It'll form a skin over it where it comes in contact. So when I took the, the lid off of my container, the entire top had a skin, but I just poked my finger through it and got to the soft stuff underneath. It smells so good in here. Can't describe to you how the aroma smells. It's like a beeswaxy, soft, supple leather shop. It, it's really cool. Now the linseed oil, when I'm out working in the garage or doing whatever, I smell it. It dissipates over the course of a couple of weeks, but the the shoes stay really uh, supple and, and dark and polished looking for months on end. And when it comes to waterproof, it's amazing. They really do an amazing job. No water goes through this leather whatsoever. You could stand in puddles with these things. Now, I actually rub, I scrubbed all the bottom of the boot, not the leather part, but the underside. And I scrubbed the edges through and get them clean. And I rub all of that with it too. And my Merrill shoes have cloth. I don't know how to describe it. It's not cotton. It's like a nylon. I rub that too. It affords protection and it's not goopy or goofy or weird one of the questions you might ask is does it attract dirt does it get dusty and dirty and no i don't see that usually what happens is it soaks down into the leather and it just creates a soft supple surface and you don't see excess oil up on the surface depending on how much you put in so it was time and i pulled the laces out so to make sure that you can get in to where the tongues are and, and any of that area. And uh, 
I'll check them again tomorrow if they need. I'll give them a little touch-up. And by tomorrow night, I'll be able to put all my laces back in. And they'll be good to go for another year, year and a half, maybe even two years. Beeswax pastes. You can hear me talk about it in episode 90 if you want to go back. Um, four to one. Four parts oil. Linseed oil. Mineral oil. Olive oil. Or some other kind of oil. I guess you could experiment. And then a table tablespoon of your fresh beeswax. Good stuff. Now if you go on to Reddit and some other places. Just one tip. There's all kinds of leather care advice lanolin and all these other things that you can add to it if that is of interest just search for shoe paste homemade beeswax go to reddit go to bing or google and you'll find tons and tons of material on the subject but quite honestly the simple beeswax paste that i made works well for me I've done also with especially with the mineral oil which is food grade um, you can do your salad bowls you have a wooden salad bowl and it looks a little dry and you can do that you could do <laughs> I, I know last time I talked about this I went around the house and picked up all these wooden things and and Sharon thought I was crazy I even polished our butcher block kitchen table with this stuff so there's tons and tons of uses for it and uh, sky's the limit. And it's so simple to do. Great thing to do during the winter time. Beeswax pastes for your shoes. Run <laughs> with your shoes on. Run, have a good time with it, everybody. Topic number two for this episode, I wanted to talk about making fondant. It's not something I'm actually a fan of, but given my difficulties this summer and into fall, and the fact that I like to have my bees buttoned up by October 31st, I'm really behind the curve. I went and put my feeders on, as you'll hear in the local hive report, but I really am doubtful that I'm going to have my hives in the condition that I usually do, which is fat and happy at this time of year. So to that end, I might actually break my winter rule, which is feed them before winter, and potentially look to feed by building a fondant that I would put over top of the hives. If you go to bkcorner.org slash fondant dash how dash two, or you just search for fondant on the website, you'll find that there's a detailed recipe on how to make fondant, which I've talked about on the show before. Not a complicated thing to do-ish, but it is a little bit of work. Four cups of water, a quarter cup of light corn syrup, one and a quarter tablespoons of lemon juice, which is the juice of half a lemon, and about eight pounds of sugar. Some object to the corn syrup. Make sure you use a light corn syrup. We like the Caro, K-A-R-O brand. Don't use the dark one because it has other things in it that are not good for the bees. You want to put it in a large tall pot. You need a thermometer. You need a long wooden spoon or spatula. And then eventually you will want to have lined parchment lined baking sheets to pour your fondant out that you can make your slabs. 
everything that you need typically when you're making something measuring cups spoons implements and so on and the other part of this that is super helpful is a KitchenAid mixer with the paddle attachment you're going to put your tall pot on the stove over medium heat make sure you have your candy thermometer on the side and you're going to add your water you're going to allow that to heat for a little bit and then you're going to add your sugar your corn syrup and your lemon juice stir this until it forms a syrup and make sure that all the raw sugar is mixed in and has liquefied turn the heat up to medium high and bring it to 235 to 245 now that's one of the things if you've ever baked candy that is really your discretion 235 makes a soft wet fudgy 245 is a little firmish almost like uh, hard but you can break it cakey texture and of course if you want something in between you're going to go 240. your mileage may vary on this uh, i've had different results going from 235 to 245 and really what you do is cook it to the right temperature and then what the consistency is has a lot to do with how you beat it with your stand mixer the proportions that i gave you the amount are perfect for a KitchenAid stand mixer because it creates the volume that the stand mixer can deal with with its motor you do not want to go overboard because you'll burn your stand mixer out and you'll be out on the porch you're going to beat the mixture after you bring it up to temperature till it turns like a soft white light bulb and depending on your mixer the version you have that could take 20 minutes or it could take an hour um, it it has to do also with how far you took the temperature whether it was 235 or all the way to 245 one thing to say about this is when you heat your sugar solution make sure you are super careful with it 245 even a coin sized bit dropped onto your hand will give you serious burns you need to be hyper vigilant that no one's in the kitchen while you're making this and that you handle it with the utmost utmost care that you don't spill a drop because even a drop will scald and burn you when you get it to that mixture soft white light bulb looking pale luminescent you can transfer to the rimmed baking sheet lined with parchment paper and just allow it to cool to room temperature and then eventually cut it up into your slabs that you're going to use if you go to the url that i mentioned bkcorner.org slash fondant dash how dash two that's the short version the devil's in the details with making some of this and if you're one of those people who want to make sure that you don't get into any trouble or want to know an elaborate version of the process so you can manage your expectations of how to do it that's there too i'm not going to spend the time doing it but one of the things that i go through i've talked about this on the show in the past is your pot choice for example when you're boiling the liquid up to the temperature that you're going to bring it it's going to foam and bubble to cook all the water out of what's in the mixture and it climbs the pot 
So you have to choose a pot. And if you had a pot suitable for the job, and if you had your choice between a low flat pot and a tall climbing pot, use the tall climbing one because of the boiling phenomena that I just talked about. One thing to say to everybody is, as you cook it, you should use a proper thermometer. Don't wing it. You want to bring it to the right temperature and you need to take it to that temperature in a moderate pace. Don't put the spurs to the burner to the point where it's so hot down at the bottom of the pot that it starts to caramelize the sugars. If you do that, the caramelization is extremely bad for the bees. That's in the elaborated point and other things. So if you're set to do this, especially if you're doing it only for your first time, my suggestion is go read the fine print. You'll feel better informed and more confident about what you're doing. And you'll get some notes about consistent and consistency and so on. So a recipe for fondant, it's that time of year for a lot of beekeepers that are prepping their hive equipment and would like to have the insurance. Then let me just say one thing. I mentioned my situation is unusual. If I'd have had my druthers, I'd have pulled my honey and fed in early September. That is uh, the typical MO. So I pull my honey mid-July to early August and then feed in either feed treat and do whatever in the August time frame and into September and button everything up by October. Needless to say, being waylaid didn't work, so I have to kind of contemplate this fondant situation. But I would encourage you as a beekeeper, if you didn't do that, to consider that in your regime next year. I say this all the time to new beekeepers and even seasoned ones alike. Your better strategy is to feed your bees and have them fat and happy, happy come Halloween. And you should not have to do anything to put quilt boards, to put fondant, to feed pollen patties at the end of the year into winter in order to make your bees survive. I've consistently fed my bees over the last number of years till they were 60 to 80 pounds per the Mid-Atlantic Research Guide, Merrick. And every spring when the bees come out, they have an excess. They have never consumed everything and they've been good. And there's never been a need to have to feed the bees fondant or any of that. Now, depending on your situation, you call the Audible, figure out what you need to do. And if you need a recipe for fondant, there's that one that I just gave you from my website, or you can look around. There's plenty of them out on the internet. Fondant for winter. It's something I think every beekeeper should try at some point just to understand how it is. Now, uh, final Kevin moment here is you could go buy fondant at a store. They sell it, but fondant made for Consumer purposes is almost usually made for cakes or some sort of bakery thing. And they do different things when they make fondant. Uh, maybe you do or don't know that they do this and you can buy fondant from them. If they do, make sure you understand the ingredients. It really should just be water, 
uh, maybe a splash of corn syrup, but not a lot. Uh, commercial recipes use corn syrup in order to give it pliability, and they may go beyond, and they may also use different variations of corn syrup. In the end, it's probably better if you made it yourself, just to make sure you don't have any risk. But the fact of the matter is, you might be able to bebop down to your local bakery and ask them if they make fondant, and they probably make it in droves. And, you know, I've heard people say they buy their fondant from that line of business. bkcorner.org slash fondant how to. You can search for it on the website right side, search button. Search for fondant and you'll find the special. So it's been some time since I provided a local hive report and I feel like I'm a bit out of touch with what's going on in my hives given how long it's been since doing a meaningful assessment. I kind of see the beekeeping season as a progression of stages throughout the year. In my last meaningful contacts with my hives, I I had just finished pulling my honey, did some peeks into the status of the brood nest after taking some mite checks and entered into the dearth stage that we have here in late summer in New Jersey. I was excited to see the goldenrod in bloom within the neighborhood and I thought it would provide a fall flow for us and then everything happened with me. In the past few weeks, I was able to light a smoker after my surgery and peek in from the top of the hives. I'm restricted in what I can do and I can lift. So I refrain from doing anything but what I can, which was peer in under the inner cover. As to the fall flow, it was a bust. I'm so disappointed. I had high expectations that this would be the year. And it's a lesson I'm familiar with, but... I don't know, this year I was optimistic that maybe with the seemingly abundant goldenrod in the neighborhood, it would bear some fruit and we once again would see a goldenrod harvest. There's one thing to say about goldenrod and it's that it's not just one plant. There's so many different species. When driving along the road and seeing fields of yellow, it's important to note that not all goldenrod is created equal, especially in the eyes of the bees and what it can yield as a resource. There are many variations on the theme, and just because the field is yellow does not mean there's gold in them now our hills. Another factor is the weather needs to cooperate, but I feel like, well, this year, as the goldenrod bloom went and rain fell. They were in tandem as far as I could see. And yeah, the things you keep tabs on in hopes of making a goldenrod harvest, aster harvest. If I had to do it all again, and maybe I'll get to try this again next year, I think I'd do things differently. As it is, you always learn from your experiences and what would I change? I feel like I didn't get in sync with the bees during the dearth. If I could hit the reset button, I would have pulled my honey in July and fed through the dearth period. Then when the fall flow comes to town, perhaps the bees would be better equipped to collect the bounty. As it is, perhaps there was a fall flow of some kind, but my honey supers remained mostly empty because they, they, the bees, the colony, had to consume what they collected during the dearth. So next year, during the dirt stage, after pulling honey, feed, feed, feed. That's my current line of thinking. 
it's not too different from my normal game plan, but I think I have to tell my future self to tweak that a bit and start feeding as soon as the honey supers are pulled. I usually wait till... Wait, let me clarify that. I usually pull my supers by earlier mid-July. That's my hope if the bees have done the job. And then I wait till the end of August to start feeding. But I feel like next year I want to do it in the beginning of August and maybe even as early as mid to late July. The plan would be not to let them see too much of the dearth. When the dearth sets in come July, let them encounter it so it slows them down a bit, but then give them a trickle of food so they maintain for the approaching fall window. And they also have stores so that when I pull fall honey supers, I don't have to feed them to make them fat and happy. That's locked in my consciousness right now, and I'm hard-pressed to execute that plan in 2024. As to the hive work this afternoon, we worked the yard to reverse the failed attempt at getting a fall crop and then consolidated the hives down to winter form. This is unusual, but when I say we, I mean, I usually do things by myself, but this afternoon I had the services of Sharon who could help me lift. We cleared all the honey supers off of all the boxes to the cart and placed man-like top feeders on each hive. I feel like it's a little late to feed them. You can't put the food in at night. It'll chill. This morning when we got up, it was just about 42 degrees. But it'll warm to 65, maybe even 70 this afternoon. So if you go out at about 10, 11 o'clock and you put a quart on each of the hives and the temperature of the food was kept room temperature in the house, they'll suck that down before night comes. And what I'm trying to avoid from the top feeders, which is a disadvantage of them, is if you leave the food on at night, in the morning when the bees get operational, it would be too cold for them to take it down. And given my hives are in the woods it may or may not get enough heat in that top under the roof uh, feeder to warm that liquid that the bees could pull it down and so i have to be judicious about how i use my top feeders we have several jugs of two to one food in the house and it's supposed to be mid to high 60s this week and next so i feel while it is stupid late and I want to have my bees fat and happy by Halloween, I'm going to try a last minute push to get some reserves into the hive for winter. Given we pulled the honey supers off, I got a chance to peek into some of the brood nests. I feel like some are adequate, some are good, and a few are a bit troubled as far as brood nests and bees. The good news is there seems to be pollen coming in and brood being reared in all the colonies, so at least I have operational queens from what I can see. You know, it's always my nature to feel a bit apprehensive about survivability. Survivability? Can't say that word. Come this time of year. You know, in the grand scheme of things, from a year-to-year -year basis, I generally do 
okay on the numbers, but some years I feel less optimistic about the chances, and, well, this might be one of them. Mostly because of the unorthodox way that we're getting through the season. That's coupled with I'm in the midst of my second year of this treatment-free beekeeping experience. And one thing that was supposed to be part of that plan is keeping hives supplied with fresh new home-raised queens. Given the situation with my eye earlier in the year and other factors, Bob Kloss and I had to forego our normal spring queen-rearing activities. And while my hives are going into winter with second and maybe even third-year queens, not a catastrophic thing, but not ideal either. All of those things add up to the equation of survivorability. I am reconciled that if things implode in the spring, I might be set back with honey production next year, but I will rebuild with whatever makes it through. These are the chances you take while trying to grow knowledge and learn. And we'll see. I think this was going to be the critical year for treatment free anyway. Uh, first year, I felt like it was going to go fine. The second year is the year where the test comes through. I have one observation to share, and it's that I did see some hot beetles in and about the colonies, but nothing that the bees didn't seem to have a handle on. Most of them were chased into the top honey supers. I had a moment in the apiary today when looking around to have some clarity as far as my equipment. This was another observation. A lot of it is looking pretty tired. We pulled apart the hive on pad number five, which is the all medium hive, and extracted one of the boxes in the middle of the stack. The top edge along the back where you stick your hive tool in, the entire top edge was rotted. You could take your finger and poke it through the wood. After showing significant rot in the woodenware, I did not want to go into winter with it sitting there. This comes back to a number of years ago, I brought a handful of boxes into the operation from a leftover equipment donation. That equipment was rough then, but I did what I could to expand its life and put it into surface. It is literally falling apart now and I need to get it all and purge it out of the, the operation and replace it with new. I have one box showing some soft spots on pad number nine and the box below it had a patch where I cut out a rotted corner earlier this year and scabbed in some scrapped wood to plug a hole. So yeah, needs a little work. My bottom boards need some work and there are some of my roofs are starting to show rot. You know, I started beekeeping in 2008 and that equipment is still in service and I did a really good job priming and painting it and doing it, but you know, wood is wood and moisture is moisture and time will take its toll. My top bar and my lands hive need a touch of love and I guess 2024 will be the year to clean up my act and get my stuff looking better. I kind of want a neat and tidy shop that goes along with my type A personality. I don't looking, like looking at uh, crummy stuff. You know, think about commercial people and their apiaries. When I see that commercial apiary, I have both contempt and compassion for that. I'm pragmatic about how hard it is to maintain things on a large scale. 
Yet I feel like it reflects poorly on the operation and people who see commercial, you know, videos and such when the boxes look like nobody loves them. So as to my operation, I feel like there's little excuse not to build a maintenance plan, but I digress. The local hive report, well, I'm not pleased at where I'm at in a plan execution mode. And I will do whatever push I can to close the gap and get our hives to winter form. Now, before I close this out, there's one last thing I want to share, and it concerns the honey supers that I pulled. They were mostly empty, but a few frames had pockets of capped honey and a touch of wet, unripened honey. So let me ask you. Now you have about 8 to 10 honey supers with frames that have stuff in them. What do you do with them? How do you operate with them? How do you store them? This is where I cue the Jeopardy music and let you think about that question. Yeah. Now, I noted that the bees had chased hot beetles up into those honey supers, so many of those frames had small hot beetles cruising around, too, as I pulled the boxes off. And this is what we did. We had our large yard cart out there. I pulled the honey supers and placed them in the yard cart and kept them covered. At some point during the operation today, Sharon and I had things ripped apart. I was culling boxes, which means I was switching them out and or pulling frames and had empty frames laying around in the hive um, bench. There were bees flying all over the place, shaking bees back into the hive and so on. It started a bit of a frenzy. There were bees trying to fly back to their hives and it started a touch of robbing and yeah. So we took those covered boxes and rolled them to the other side of the property to get them out of the apiary so we didn't start a massive onslaught. Here's where my Jeopardy music comes to a close and I'll tell you what I did. And I feel it's a bit unusual, but I lifted the covers and let the bees find them. Now there's a bit of context here that needs to be had as to the strategy and the rationale for the action. I uncovered them late in the afternoon, six o'clock. It was dusk, soon to be dark. It gets to be dark about six thirty, seven o'clock now. When it comes to what's inside those, there's a couple frames, maybe six in the total operation that are fully capped. Maybe a few more, I'm not sure. We're thinking about putting those in the freezer and I'll have them for spring. The frames that are open or lightly filled, I don't want them. And I just talked about, I want to feed the bees. And so I let the bees come and rob them out for an hour or two. There was a little bit of a fracas going on in the cart. But it wasn't terrible, and it was on the other side of the property. And when I went back and looked in the apiary just to check, it didn't start the robbing frenzy. It just had a lot of activity of bees coming and going late in the hour. 
doing this served two purpose. One, it fed the bees and it got rid of the wet nectar because that's what they're going to do first. They're not going to go rip and tear at the capping when they can get to the open stuff. So they'll somewhat clean the frames out. The other thing is it's going to chase all the hive beetles out of those frames without a colony to keep them warm and so on. And with the frenzy of the bees doing robbing inside those, the hive beetles scoot. That's my experience. I don't want to have any of those frames in storage with any hive beetles in them. Mm, hold on to that. We'll, we'll come back to that. But the other aspect of this is, I'm not going to leave it there for tomorrow. There's a forecast low of between 40 and 45. It's been 42 degrees in the morning, Fahrenheit. In the morning when the bees are not flying, they're all back in their colonies, tucked and warm, I'm going to go pull that cart and put it in the garage. And sometime in the afternoon with the garage doors closed, I'll go through the inventory of the frames and I'll pull out what I want and I'll leave what I want to give to the bees and then I'll roll the cart back out and put it at the far corner of the property and do a little bit of open feeding. Do I recommend this for you? This is really where you get to make your decision as a beekeeper as to whether you would want to do that. I know that some people don't like to cross-pollinate food in this manner. Whatever you have going on in one hive could potentially contaminate all your other hives. Honestly, I know people who do open feeding as a regular rule with syrup, and that brings all the bees together in a single place. I don't know. I have never, ever in my dozen plus years of beekeeping experienced mayhem from bees robbing out something like this and bringing nasty bad things back to the hive. I don't have nasty bad things going on in my hives in the first place. Really the problems come from varroa mite and or the hive beetles this time of year, but not from nasty comb. And these are all honey supers. They're clean. They don't have brood in them. And so I feel like you know, let me, let me say this. When you harvest your honey and you put your wet supers back on, how many really do put them back on the exact same hive? And how many people, and I could tell you it's a lot, just put their boxes out and let the bees come and clean them up out in the yard. This is the functional equivalent of that. Is it a good practice? I don't know. Maybe this is one of those do as you do, not as I say moments. I, I'm not sure. I have a cart in the morning sitting in the garage. And I'll think through this a little bit more. And at some point I'll make a decision. A lot of it is what's actually in those boxes. Many of them didn't have anything in them. And, you know, I guess once I get done taking inventory of what kind of nectar and or capped honey was in them after the bees did an hour or two of robbing, I'll come up with a game plan. That's the best I could tell you at the moment. So local hive report, wow, that was a long one, but hopefully uh, 
you know, it gave you a glimpse in the in a day in a life. I mean, this is this is what the point of this show is, is to tell you how it really goes. And you can decide whether you like or don't like what I do. Um, but it's what I did at the moment. And, you know, the funny thing is there's times when I do things and then I look back and I say the same thing you do. That was really dumb, Kevin. <laughs> but when you're in the moment, right? I can't lift boxes. I have Sharon working with me and, and it's just a different odd dynamic. You do what you do when you're doing it. And could you do it better or differently? Sure. But when the moment's in, in full play, you do what you're doing. And was it right to pull all these and put them on a cart? And do that? No, but that's what we did. Or yes. And that's what we did. I, I'm not sure. Ultimately, this is part of the beekeeping experience. It's kind of fun in that way is that it's very dynamic and different every single time you do it. Local Hive Report check. Let's go to a couple closing comments and we'll get you on out of here. So the first thing to say is, if all that I have going on in my life is not enough, I recently had to endure a computer rebuild. Somewhere along the line, one of the SSL certificates that allows tools on your Windows machine to communicate with the outside world through SSL, through HTTPS, decided to get corrupt. And I did everything that I could to try and fix it. I'm a computer guy and I should know how to do this. But in the end, I switched strategies. I wanted to update my computer and put some different devices in it. NVN E drives and SSD drives and switch away from some of the old stuff I had. So in my downtime, I recently just rebuilt my computer. There were times when I could have recorded an episode, but the tools that I used to both record and post were out of commission until I got my computer fixed. So all's well that ends well, I suppose computer is uh, good mm -hmm. to go and Hence the reason we're able to do some recording here today after rebuilding over the weekend. I want to take some time to say thank you to the Western Apiculture Society and the Calgary Beekeepers Association. The Northern Lights Conference was a massive success, due in part to the hard work of people like Ron Miksha and WAS President Etienne Tardif, Elizabeth Goldie, Sherry Frank, and well, just about the whole organizing committee, the speakers and so on. The venue itself was great. The speakers in the lineup were great. The vendor area was well intended and all in all, it's an outstanding event. The vibe reminded me kind of like Hive Life from last year. I got to meet a lot of great people and it was a surprise to me that even in Canada, many knew of the podcast effort and took an opportunity to say hi, stop me in the hallway and say they listen. One participant said she listens to the show, and when I asked her where she was from, she said Phoenix, Arizona area. I took that in, and I took a moment to ask her, boy, it seems kind of odd premise that someone from your region, from so different, something so different from the mid-Atlantic region, would find an interest in the show. But it goes to demonstrate, I guess, that beekeepers like listening to beekeepers. I had a moment to reflect on catching up with some old friends and making some new ones. We saw Dewey and Rich Morris. I got to meet his lovely wife for the first time. Spent some time chatting with Manhattan Nasser, who has a bit of New Jersey ties with Rutgers in his long-distant past, so it was fun when he mentioned in one of his talks working with Tim Schuler. And, uh, well, I think you could tell that we had a good time. It was Sharon's first full-on beekeeping conference, and I think 
three days was a bit of a test, but she made it through. I felt like my presentations hit the mark on all accounts. All three were well received and I feel like it was a comfortable presentation uh, moments for me. I was in the zone during delivery and thankfully the new Propolis talk was a hit and the other freshened up presentations looked great in the telling. Two of the three talks were recorded and it seems that in time Waz may produce and post these but in the interim if you wanted to see what I presented you can visit bkcorner.org click on the menu for presentations and you can get a look at the PowerPoint decks that I presented. I just received a call this week to present something in November. Uh, one of my favorite things to do is go out and work with different beekeeping clubs and organizations and meet a bunch of people. So uh, hopefully there'll be more of that in the future. All in all, it was an amazing few days. And before I end, a quick thank you to Rob McBain from the hospitality invite on the last day. It was a pleasant surprise to be asked to participate in that. And we had a good time hanging out there with everyone. If I have it right, next year's conference will be in Santa Monica, California. And if you're a West Coaster, heck, even if you're East or Middle, you might be well served to consider a WAS event when it comes around next year. It was a good show all around. As to what's next for me, I think one of the things I need to turn my attention to is whether or not I'm going to go to any of these January beekeeping conferences. And aside, I saw Cayman Reynolds, actually had a picture taken with him some point along the weekend, but I didn't get to talk to him directly. As to the situation that played out down there in Tennessee, over time I've come to hear a few things about the situation and uh, different things that emerged. And, well, there's some arguments on both sides that seem to match what ended up taking place. And I guess in the end, Everybody's going to go their separate ways, do what they're going to do, and we carry on from here. So, hmm. Well, I still do not love that the regional conferences are going head-to-head. -head. I think it'll likely end up successful this year for both of them, and let's just hope in the long run it turns out well for the beekeeping community in general. Seeing the leaves changed out there in Canada and knowing that that's right around the corner as the trees start to drop their leaves here in New Jersey. It makes me think of fall and I start to plan my fall activities. I want to make some more mead. This time I want to make a cherry mead. And there's some computer work that I need to do getting back to the management program. Now that the computer is back up and functional, I can start creating content again. So no rest for the weary, onward and upward. And that will close out the episode. Uh, the last thing I'll say, um, I don't typically promote myself, but I wanted to ask if you have a moment and you're on iTunes and Apple or someplace where you catch your podcast, rate us, review us, uh, help us out. The more ratings you get pro con, good, bad, indifferent, tend to give notoriety to the show and helps people find us. I, I would anticipate now that things have kind of settled down and fall is settling in that I'll be able to record more regularly. Uh, my management mentoring work, I think, is going to be balanced that I can also record podcast episodes, which is one of the other reasons why I've kind of been slow to the punch. But all of that will takes care of itself. And yeah, I get to this point where I start to ramble and it's time to say thanks. 
Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we accomplish great things. Thanks for listening and be well, everyone.